Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mercer's Energizing the Employee Experience podcast. Here at Mercer, we're the global consulting leader across talent, health, retirement, investments, and of course, employee benefits. For more details, please visit us at uk.mercer.com. In this podcast series, we're going to be exploring the future of work, the latest trends, and of course, all the big topics in HR. I'm your host, Jack Curzon, Consultant Director here at Mercer, and each week I'm going to be joined by colleagues of, of mine from Mercer and wider um, who are going to share all their ideas, their experience, and their insights. On today's episode, we're going to be covering all things mental health. So I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Wolfgang Seidel and Donna Biggs. It'd be great if we could just get a short introduction as to who you are, what your role is, etc. to start the episode. So Donna, tell us a little yeah, bit about sure. yourself. Yeah, um, sure. Good to be here, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so yeah, I'm Donna Biggs. I am the UK HR Director from Mercer. Relatively new into the role. Um, but having worked in the business of health um, in Mercer for a, a long, long time, so um, have jumped the fence into HR and bringing those experiences with me. Well, I'm thrilled to be here again with you, Donna. Uh, always a pleasure and, and with you as well, uh, Jack. Um, I'm Wolfgang Seidel. I lead uh, Workplace Health Consulting and by background, I'm a psychiatrist for my sins, but also a return on investment researcher and I do general uh, health and well-being strategy with my team. Thanks Wolfgang, thanks Donna, great to have you both on the show. Um, today's topic obviously being mental health is is a really important one and I know both of you have lots to say. So I wanted to take a bit of a, a step back first actually and Wolfgang I'll drop you in it first in the deep end and I'll ask how would you summarize mental health as a as a concept or mental ill health, if you like, from a clinical view? I think it's good to step back the way you just suggested. And I think uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around that. I think mental health is mainly, from my point of view, about well-being and flourishing, uh, as simple as that. Or to borrow from Sigmund Freud, it is about being able to work and able to love. Of course, I do know that we are using the term mental health as a euphemism for mental ill health in most cases. But I like to talk about mental distress rather than use diagnostic labels without proper assessments, as our mental health experience is on a continuum. We all have mental health and mental well-being is fluid. It changes day by day, it changes month by month and even year by year. And there are not just those extremes of mental health or mental uh, illness. There is a lot in between. And uh, Adam Grant from uh, Wharton uh, phrased it very well recently in the New York Times when he was talking about employees are currently, many of them, in a state of languishing, which he describes as the neglected middle child between flourishing and depression. I think that's quite a helpful concept to remind us of that continuum. And if you listen, of, for instance, now experience this type of brain fog that he and so many employees describe, you are not alone. In the pandemic, a certain amount of anxiety is a normal response to an abnormal event. And our mental health can be challenged in various situations. Uh, that will affect first our subjective well-being that's what we notice we wake up one day don't feel quite ourselves then we might develop symptoms we might 
sleep less and all that may impact our so-called functioning. That's when it becomes a little bit more serious. That's functioning at home, functioning at work. And in extreme cases and in very rare cases, um, that can pose a risk to self of, of others or others. But it's important that we talk about this continuum and symptoms and don't equate people with the diagnosis. You know, I often use that example that we say, oh, he has a broken leg, but uh, she is depressed. A subtle difference, but an important difference. If we just mention the symptom, there's a clear path to recovery. But once we start labeling people by saying she is depressed, it's difficult to see how she can get rid of that label. So it's better to say someone has got depression, implying that there is treatment for it, just like there is treatment for a broken leg. And that strict distinction between physical and emotional well-being is nonsense anyway, if I may call it that, because it's usually both that we have physical sensations and uh, emotional sensations at the same time. And we need to destigmatize mental health and elevate it uh, to a parity with physical health. Even ISO have brought out a new standard for psychosocial well-being now, which I'm pleased to say has been written in the same bureaucratic language as any other ISO standard, which uh, is to me proof that mental health is about to become uh, as, uh, you know, elevated to that same level as physical health. And uh, we need to look at positive mental health, of course, uh, not just describing when something goes wrong in medical terms, such as mental disorders, which we often do. And that's why the science of positive psychology is a science of flourishing or positive mental health. Or to use an extreme example, uh, some of you uh, may have read that the WHO, uh, as far back as in 1948, gave their own definition of health. And they said it's a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, which is, of course, very difficult to achieve and potentially alienating people because it's such a tall order and it's too comprehensive and hence almost meaningless. But let's not forget that some people of course, take comfort from a diagnosis. For them, it's a relief as it explains their suffering from their point of view. So everyone is different, whether they welcome or hate uh, that uh, label of diagnosis. So, so if you ask people generally, they would say mental well-being means being balanced, self-aware, able to cope, confident, resilient, all that stuff uh, comes into it. But at the same time, when I'm highlighting the positive now, I think we also need to be careful not to romanticize mental illness as something that is so very special that we withhold treatment from people as a consequence because that experiment failed when it was uh, executed a few decades ago. But the good thing, and I do come to a close now, I think, uh, <laughs> I can see you getting restless, uh, uh, Jack, the good thing about today's debate about mental well-being, I think, is that we are now aware that everyone has mental health and it's worth looking after each other and it's worth looking after our mental health just like we would uh, uh, look after the rest of our body. And we know that work is a really important part of that. And we also know from our uh, work with our clients that a good health strategy uh, shows good outcomes. 
Thanks so much, Wolfgang. I'm itching to talk more because you said so many really, really interesting things there. I just want to, before we carry on, get Donna's view, you know, especially from like an HR viewpoint and almost from an internal perspective. Uh, what does mental health mean to you, Donna? Yeah, it's really interesting. And and, and almost, you know, I, I, come at, I come at this in a, from a very different angle from Wolf, the Wolfgang um, in, in terms of little or no clinical knowledge. But you see what he's talking about and we're experiencing that with people in our business um you know people struggling to be motivated every morning when they get up feeling like they're on a hamster wheel and that they've been in front of a laptop or a a zoom environment for a long long time and that they feel like they're really busy but getting less done. We, we see that in our world, you know, we measure utilization, you know, number of hours of work done, because that's how we, how we make uh, a lot of the time, how we um, demonstrate revenue. Yet we're, we have got people talking about feeling busy, overwhelmed with work, yet those utilization numbers are falling. So there's this parody between people feeling like they're working and working and working yet actually not getting a lot done so that that sort of feeling of languishing and not flourishing is evident in in the sorts of feedback we're getting from folks in our business and i think that that piece around you 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 talk about you know what is mental health for me as a as a non-clinical person it really is you have good mental health and you have average mental health and you have you, you, you know, a poor state of mental health. And I think employees in our organization would sit anywhere along any of those scale at any given point in time. And from a HR perspective, I think it's important that we try and understand that and where somebody is sat at any point in time as well. So, to, yeah, of, of course, we want everybody to feel happy and to feel healthy at work and to thrive. And that's really important. And so we work towards that, but also we need to identify those folks that are at the that are at the extreme, and be able to see that you know. I, and I, I don't know what the percentages are, but if we've got ninety percent of our population is is doing all right, that you know they might be moving along that scale a little at times, but we need to try and make sure we do identify that ten percent who are perhaps going too far down the. The other end of the extreme and, and you know, where, where we, we can't, they do need clinical help or we can help them to, to seek out um, the support they need. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think you've both mentioned that languishing concept and the kind of the bookends of either flourishing or kind of being depressed as a clinical uh, diagnosis. But I, I definitely think there's a lot of space in the middle, which people don't utilize. You know, we, in, the, in employee benefits, people focus far too much on providing a reactive solution once something has gone wrong. Uh, and I'm not really talking about being preventative. I'm just talking about keeping people in a good state rather than waiting until they regress dramatically one way. Um, but I also, you know, stats are important too, right? I'm sure Wolfgang um, has got lots of stats. I think one that I've heard is that one in four people have some form of mental health problem to call it that but also four in four people have mental health and it's everything it's really important to talk about being well as as 
the same breath as potentially being unwell. Um, but in other podcast episodes, we have very quickly dropped the C-bomb and talked about COVID and the impact of the pandemic. I'm, I'm really happy that Wolfgang was able to get Freud in in a couple of minutes into the episode <laughs> into mental health, um, which I guess isn't that great deal of a surprise. But the, the bit I want to just cover next really is this remote revolution. And, you know, Donna, you touched on the, the change in world of work there. What impact do you think being in an entirely virtual world has had on people's mental health. You, you touched on it there with the utilization piece, which is fascinating. But what other impact have you seen it have? So, so, so look, I think um, we talk a lot about the um, the downsides of being in this virtual world, uh, and and yes, there probably are many. But uh, I, I want to I want I'd start first with thinking about the great leveler that the virtual world has been, particularly for for um from our perspective colleagues who have got potentially a disability that you know that they have been able to to be at work alongside everybody else without in their virtual environment um it's been a great i feel that it has been a great leveler for from a hierarchical perspective you know it's we've got everybody has been in their bedroom or in their kitchen, or you know, in whatever environment their living room, so it's removed some of the hierarchical constraints. I feel that may have, which which enable people to be more open and more transparent because of that environment, and it's also brought lots of people. You know, you can a gathering that you might have done physically might have had ten people. You can now bring thirty people. So you you have we have been able to help more people develop and, and, and attend programs they might not have been able to. So, so in that regard, I think it's, it's been, it has had some positives. Um, and equally, people have been able to spend more time at home if that's, you know, if that is what has helps them to be happy. So I've heard lots of comments from people who have been able to take their kids to school or pick them up and spent more time with their family. In fact, somebody last week actually said to me, that throughout this period, they've spent more quality time with their family than they ever have because they're not commuting and they're there. At, they can go at 3.15 and go and pick up their children from school, whereas they would never have been able to do that when they were in the office. So there's been some positives. Um, but I think from outside of that, there has clearly been a lot of impact of being in a room on your own, talking to a laptop, very two-dimensional um, back-to-back Zoom meetings, you know, sat in front of a computer the whole time, the feeling of isolation, the feeling of loneliness that some people have had, particularly at the start of the pandemic, I feel feel that there would have been people who, you know, they live in a small flat on their own and they were stuck in a small flat on their own for a very long time. Um, They didn't have the, sorry, that's my doorbell. If you heard that, (laughs) they didn't have the advantage of, you know, having people around them at all. So I think um, that there has been a lot of fatigue, Zoom fatigue. There are things that organizations can do and things that we can do to help, you know, like changing, having meetings for 20 minutes rather than 30 minutes or 50 minutes rather than an hour to give people a break. But it, it's certainly been tough at times. And, and personally, you know, if you come out of a day of back-to-back Zoom meetings 
and then need to do your work. That's you know that that's hard. So yeah, so it's um, been difficult. I know Wolfgang. I'll give you the chance to talk in a second. I just want to add to that because I think um, you couldn't have timed that doorbell better either. Because it, you know, in previous years, that would be something which you know people would be petrified about on a, on yeah. a call, let alone a recording. And you know, there was that clip a couple of years ago on BBC News, wasn't there, where that guy is talking and his kids come in and his wife comes in and drags them out, and it was such a big thing. But nowadays, you know, you get to see people's kids, their pets, you know, people, it's fine. And I, I think that's a massive positive that's come out of the yep, virtual world, you know, absolutely. But yeah, Wolfgang, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm really um, excited that Donna quickly picked out the positives first before we talk about the stressors that everyone is talking about. And the DE&I aspect is really uh, very important here. And as we uh, both uh, said, it, it is about giving uh, equal access to work, say, to disabled people, which is a great advantage. Also, I think it, it levels to a certain degree the uh, geographic uh, situation where people live because you can certainly uh, now in a more acceptable fashion work from a remote place and um, and these are all fantastic points of course we need to keep an eye on uh, being equitable to uh, everybody particularly when it comes to flexible working because there's a large uh, proportion of employees who of course uh, cannot work from home due to the nature of their work. You know, I mean, I work with a lot of organizations that are in the utility space or construction business and so on. Um, and, um, and, and we need to be clear that many of those employees don't even feel disadvantaged from that point of view, because they would say to me, I wouldn't want to sit in a stuffy office like you are. I like to be on the construction side in open air. But we need to be clear that, you know, if somebody is a, ch a checkout assistant in a supermarket, they have the same rights for uh, achieve it, to achieve flexible working as uh, somebody like you and I. And that flexibility is, of course, not where they work, but when they work and how they work and so on. It's sometimes harder to achieve, but it can be achieved. Um, in addition to that, of course, there are the downsides that are quite significant. And we have seen that uh, many people um, feel like they are living at work rather than uh, working from home, or we talk about screen life balance rather than work life balance, and people feel more anxious, stressed, or depressed uh, than ever before, or run into financial difficulties. And you know, you have mentioned figures as to how high the incidence of mental distress is already, uh, or has been already before the pandemic, and now it's of course uh, gone up even further. And um, so I think we need to be clear that we find a way forward where we are rethinking work in such a way now that we are uh, trying to uh, personalize more the benefits we are providing, but also the way how we design work, because it, we take it for granted that work is designed in that way, how it hinders our personal achievement and our achievements at work. There are plenty of opportunities to go uh, beyond that now and be a bit more creative, use some design thinking. The prime example is, of course, the move back into the office, where many organizations are only thinking about going from one extreme to the other and create a lot of collaboration spaces, but have no fixed desks for anybody anymore, which again, um, uh, doesn't help somebody who suffers, for instance, from Asperger's syndrome uh, and therefore needs a predictable space from which they are working on. And even 
generally speaking, you know, the homeworking scenario that you asked us about had different impacts on different personality types. As a rule of thumb, just to generalize, you know, most introverted personality types relish the opportunity of uh, uh, sort of organizing their own day, having a flexible time to go for a run in, at, in the middle of the day and cook healthy food at home that they wouldn't be able to access when they are at work. And by contrast, people who are extroverted uh, suffered uh, as a rule of thumb a bit more because they need other people to bounce ideas off. And so it's an interesting challenge. But also, you know, uh, our duty of care as an employer suddenly extends into your place at home which in the past was purely your choice, but uh, uh, the, almost overnight we asked people to start working from home. So that's an interesting environment as well. So we need to talk about what happens in that home. And domestic violence is one of those horrible things that we saw coming out from the first uh, uh, essays and data that I saw in, in, in March 2020 coming out of China and then also in the UK and in the US and so on. So that's an interesting phenomenon, but also to sort of these, to sort of, um, what, what's the best word to put it, um, to sort of uh, move away from just the heavy end of it, of talking about domestic violence, there's also the ordinary interaction between people at home and suddenly people are living together uh, in the presence of somebody else, you know, 24-7, which they were not used to. So it was a challenge for our relationships and a lot of psychological research has looked into that very carefully. And what we did find there is that some relationships were thriving and others, of course, um, went to the divorce lawyer. And, uh, and I think the English psychoanalyst Winnicott had a good way of describing that. He said it's a big psychological achievement to be able uh, to be alone in the presence of somebody else. That means that you can be oblivious to somebody being around you without neglecting them because you're focusing on your work and then you're focusing on that other person, for instance. So it's it, there are several big challenges um, associated with uh, what's happening at home. And we also saw that unfortunately there was not much equality in terms of who lost out because unexpectedly women lost out more. I thought it's the first time that men and women had to withdraw from the workplace simultaneously. So there is at least some fairness in that. And yet there wasn't because at the receiving end of domestic violence were many more women uh, than men, many more women lost their job or had to 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 change to to part-time work and 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 uh, make family commitments and so forth so really something to be um, considered and other minority groups again as well so you probably heard in in the news as well about uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community suddenly living in an environment where they can't escape the sort of homophobic uh, uh, attacks on them. And we saw also um, a much higher prevalence of, of um, serious outcomes of COVID infections in in ethnic minority groups, which has nothing to do with genetics and everything to do with the uh, circumstances in which people live. And then, of course, we have young employees uh, who suffered more from anxiety disorder than others. And, and I think um, Donna very um, well described that by saying, you know, not everybody has a, a place um, 
to work at home that is sufficient to to in, engage with your job some people have to work and share the kitchen table with a number of flatmates or i have done focus groups for global companies who 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 told me in in other countries where call centers are located that people had to work out of what they described as a situation of slums and having their laptops on top of the ironing board so you know we need to be very careful that um, that that we don't assume that um, there has been equality. Now, coming back to the mental health question implied in your original question, I think what Donna and I prepared the case for here as well is to say that probably a lot of mental health challenges are still uh, in the future because not everything has peaked yet, particularly when it comes to things like post-traumatic stress disorder as a consequence of uh, say multiple bereavements as a consequence of of long stays in intensive care units or as a consequence of domestic violence so we uh, that uh, situation hasn't peaked yet nevertheless because you might read in the tabloids a lot about an epidemic of um, a collective um, wave of PTSD that's not a terminology that I would uh, use because while we perhaps have experienced a collective trauma that is uh, undoubtedly true. I don't believe to borrow again a very serious psychiatric label and put it on absolutely everybody. And that's why I was really thrilled as well how you said that before, Donna, that you, you I think you said uh, like 10% of people really need that diagnosis and that treatment. So I think we have to be careful that we don't mix everything up and say there is 100% of this and another 100% of that, for instance. Yeah, Wolfgang, it's a really interesting point that... Um a piece around the 10%. And what concerns me in, in my capacity as the HR director is that we have, it's getting to that 10%. And, and you, we, we can't see people's, people in quite the same way because when we were physically in an office, somebody would be absent and they would be conspicuous by their absence. Whereas actually in the virtual world, somebody can be absent and in that 10% who are suffering in some way, but we can't see it in the same way because we're not all connected and we're not all physically in an office. So, you know, somebody being out of the office isn't immediately, oh, where's so-and-so today? They're out. Are they unwell? Should, you know, we check in on them. But we don't have that physical sign that somebody's missing. Absolutely. And what, I think we're what concerns, yeah. sorry, what concerns me is the, that we somehow we have to try and make sure we don't miss those people that are are really really suffering and are in the ten percent and are virtually in a, in a bad way. You know, we have to stay connected with everybody to to try and um, make sure that that everybody is is fine. You know that and and fine is okay in these circumstances and and you know make sure we find those folks who are suffering and who who aren't fine. That was the big paradox, wasn't it, about social distancing? Because that was the last thing we needed to be socially distanced. We needed connection, but we unfortunately had to be physically distanced, which would have been yes. a better term for it. And I yep. agree with you. And I'm just wondering, you know. Um, when very quickly, it would appear to me that most of my clients are moving towards a hybrid model and to, towards a model of higher flexibility where they try to meet individual uh, needs and also are cognizant of the intersectionality of people's individual needs and which groups they belong to. There's a smallish group 
of leaders who think that we can only flourish when we are all back at the workplace five days a week as we used to be. And um, that is, of course, a slightly questionable one, because I wonder whether human beings aren't a bit more creative than that. And we might learn to be with each other and to, to look out for each other also via technology, because I think, uh, you know, human beings have often uh, uh, talked about new uh, uh, developments in technology as if it was the end of the world and then learn to live with them. So we probably have to be a bit more creative and uh, and looking out for each other is possible also over Zoom, but it has to be also part of the fabric of your organization, of your culture, of the structure. And you just use an extreme example of somebody who was onboarded during the crisis. It must have been a nightmare for them. How do you create your network that you and I, as seasoned professionals, have at our disposal? Probably more people contacted you than you had time for, and so on and so forth. Whereas mm -hmm. somebody who is starting at, um, in the business may have, have had exactly the opposite experience. So we need to create structures and mechanisms of tandem learning, of buddying people up, of giving those introverts a chance to be um, to, to, to plan their meetings because they may not be as forthcoming as, as extroverts are. Yeah, that's really, I think that's really important. And, and ultimately what we're talking about here is probably, sim it, uh, this is simplifying everything that you're saying there to some extent, Wolfgang, um, but it, it's, it's about communicating. It's about connecting in that kind of very simple way, which you can do virtually, which you can do. And clearly we can still do in person as well, but you know, that, that staying in touch, that keeping connected, that, checking in that everybody that somebody is fine and and it doesn't need to be it can it can be done in many different ways i think but it's it's that human connection that's that's vital to for us to make sure that colleagues are fine and our teams are fine and and you know our, our friends and families are fine it, it's no different Absolutely. So I think we've got time for one more question. I just wanted to pick both of your brains when it comes to what can companies do a bit better to support people's mental health, either improve it or keep it in a good place. So Donna, over to you first of all, as a, as a HR director, yeah. what, what do you see from an internal perspective or you know, yeah. what, what would you like to do? It's, it's a really, it's really interesting, interesting, Jack. We've, we, so at, at Mercer, we have, you know, we have people like Wolfgang, whose job it is in our business to talk to clients about well-being, and we have a, a lot of well-being, therefore well-being tools that we give access to for our people managers and our colleagues, and uh, you know, it, there's, there's vast pages of it. Um, and I was talking to Wolfgang earlier the, this year about something almost well-being fatigue, <laughs> which was my terminology and not a clinical term. <laughs> I hasten to add. But it sounds really uh, academic. It should be the, the theme for a PhD, I have to say. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, but the this, this whole concept that you feel overwhelmed sometimes with about, you know, everybody, there's a lot of well-being. You can, you must do this. You must eat these things every day. You must go for a run. You must, all of these things, you must do your mindfulness and you must do some meditation. And here, and actually it can be almost more overwhelming 
I think, than somebody just saying, picking up the phone and saying, are you all right? How are you doing? How's your workload? How's your, how's your thing? How's your, you know, that piece around staying connected. Um, and we found that actually, that access, the more tools we gave people, the less they used them. So as we have a... Um, we have a colleague in the business who decided to do something slightly different, which I thought was ingenious um, and did something which was, they just referenced it as a well-being day, but it wasn't really a well-being day. They took some time away together from their sort of laptops in a, a virtual, they were in a virtual environment, but they didn't talk about work. They talked about how they were doing as a group, as a team. And then they gave each other an hour off to go and do something healthy with their time, you know, they healthy in terms of physically healthy. They went for a walk, they, whatever it was that they wanted to do. And so it created a conversation about how people were feeling and how that, which was then replicated amongst that group. And so they talked and realized that they weren't the only, that whoever, whichever wasn't the only person feeling like lethargic or languishing, that they all were. And actually, that then created something much more personal. It wasn't a well-being site. It wasn't an app. All of which have their place, but it was a human. It was a, a human interaction, and a hum, human way of thinking about well-being. So I think if you know, in if I was thinking about that, then from our perspective, I think we need to be creative around what we do about well-being and how we think about what it is that people want. So, yes, of course, lots of people love an app. They love things that, you know, a website that they can use. They love top tips and things like that. But equally, not everybody does. So, I, th you know, some of those things are really important. And a lot of it is about signposting, Jack. And, you know, we, we signpost people to the right tools for the right their right situation, things like EAPs, things like virtual GPs, who all of which are available, but it's equally balanced with a, how do you interact and how do you connect with people in a different way to help them feel better ultimately. You know what that reminds me of is, um, and I fully agree with you as usual, but um, that, you know, people like to take that scattergun approach when they are stressed or nervous or unsure what will land. And in reality, what we have also learned through the pandemic is that we need only or should need evidence-based models that have an outcome attached to it. Nobody really has time and money anymore to spend on something just because it sounds fashionable. But, you know, that is something that is a very uh, clear uh, strategic uh, process where you look at your data, you analyze your data, you look whether your assumptions are really right that you have, you can verify that by cross-referencing health insurance data, absence data, income protection data, EAP and risk data and so on. And then you can create those meaningful pathways that start with training for managers and employees and end up with giving timely and early access to um, um, to uh, to treatment uh, opportunities for those people who need them. And, and you know, Donna, you, you and I uh, have done those projects before and we know that yeah. they can have huge impact like 40% reduction in absence or or 60% improvement in therapy outcomes and certainly improvement in claims ratios. But I'm saying all that very quickly because I'm more intrigued by the points you make about 
you know, uh, the, the human element that needs to surround all those perfectly useful tools, but without that human element, it wouldn't work. And so I think we are both also talking about uh, health and well-being has to become part of the culture of an organization. It has to permeate the whole organization, not to be a nice add-on or a mm. sticking plaster after the event. It needs to be something that is part and parcel of what makes us flourish and what makes us more successful with our clients. And, and you know, the, the data, and I haven't labored any data yet because Jack was mentioning earlier, I might, um, mm -hmm. you know, the data is startling that when you look at the research we have done with BITC, that 41% of employees say over the last 12 months, they had a mental health issue, either partly or fully due to work. That's a significant amount of data. And, and in my sort of mental arithmetics, I'm thinking we would never accept that in terms of physical ill health. We would not accept it as a health and uh, safety element. If you imagine you just have 10,000 employees, 4,100 of them per year would say they had a mental health issue related to work. That's 15 people per day. And why do I go through that? Because it's really uh, an interesting image that I created, and I've never mentioned that before, is that if you imagine we return back to the office and there was somebody who just, um, uh, you know, makes a practical joke of uh, dripping up 15 people every day when they walk through the entrance hall of that, uh, of that office building and, and people injure themselves. We wouldn't accept that. And yet this is how many people get psychologically injured um, every day. And, um, and then the other aspect, I think, that we like to forget about, because it's quite easy to say, okay, I give you an app, I give you some manager training, I do all those tactical things that have been done before, and many of them are extremely helpful. But we shy away from uh, talking about the elephant in the room of uh, the culture change or sending somebody back after the training into a toxic environment, if you like. So um, I think calling everything mental health um, is not helpful. And uh, a lot of stuff that we pathologize and call mental health is actually, I'm afraid to say, to do with how the organization is structured and manager capability. Because if it is the consequence of discrimination that somebody is suffering, then I don't call that uh, mental health, to be honest. I call it something else that needs to be addressed first before I'm willing to to, to call it uh, mental health. So it has to permeate the whole organization that we create uh, sort of an, a, a climate where you have psychological safety and where where people can, can flourish. And you have to also uh, introduce interventions that that have a measurement attached to them. And, um, and as you said before, Donna, if there is no good collaboration and people don't um, look out for each other, this all will not lead to the resilience that we desire. Yeah, I think uh, you almost can conclude that, Wolfgang, is we're back to that scale, aren't we? We talked about the two extremes, but what we've got is a whole bunch of activity that can take place at a macro level to really understand the organization and the root causes. And then right at a micro level, how people live their lives in their corporate organization and how they interact and how they behave and how culturally that organization supports that ability to change those big macro levels. So, it, yeah, it's the micro and the macro. And you can't just do the one thing. And, and there's a whole bunch of other things in between that yeah. impact 
ultimately those macro results you were talking about. And that makes you more uh, that makes you more productive. I often use that uh, thought experiment with clients when they say, "What shall we change culturally when we go back to the office?" I sometimes say to them, "Think back to the time when you started your professional career. What was your dream of what your job would be like? How you can self-actualize? How you can uh, be successful uh, at home and at work? What would that job look like? Can we sort of all spend a few minutes at least on trying to create?" better work as opposed to just going back to same old, same old. Yeah. There's the, a huge point for me. There is your analogy, Wolfgang on, you know, people tripping up um, and getting injured. You wouldn't accept that in the workplace. And there's, I think there's a, a big line that companies draw between people working or being employed with a, an illness and people working and being employed with an illness that is caused by their employer and those different elements of potential DNI issues or other psychological effects that a company may have on someone is often overlooked. Um, I think, you know, trying to draw a strategy around that to to support people is is a good first step. But um, I knew this would happen. I knew we would run out of time because the both of you have such fantastic insight and information to bring to the table. So the first thing I'd like to say, obviously, is is thank you to both. Donna and Wolfgang for that really, really interesting and insightful uh, comments. I know we could talk for a lot longer. Um, perhaps we'll do a part two in the future and we can cover some more specifics. So Donna and Wolfgang, thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. And obviously for our listeners, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Please subscribe for further episodes. If you've got any questions, we're going to put people uh, like Wolfgang and Donna's contact details in the in the notes so you can get in touch with them directly. I'm sure they won't mind. Um, also, if you've got any other questions, then please pop us an email at mercer.uk at mercer.com or visit the website for more resources, which is uk.mercer.com. Thanks very much, everyone. 